Your story is waiting for you today. Your story has something new to say. But your story will only come out to play when you're alone. Alone. Alone in a room with invisible people. The following episode may contain swearing. Alone in a Room with Invisible People is brought to you by hollyswritingclasses.com. If you find value in what we do and you'd like to support the podcast, go to coffee.com. That's K-O hyphen fi.com forward slash alone or you can go to alone with invisible people.com forward slash support us to find out more thank you hi guys it's rebecca the host of alone in a room with invisible people we had a few behind the scenes issues this week so this episode you are going to be getting the last and final holly's holly lyle on writing podcast now, the last episode that you're going to hear can, is, was never heard before. Uh, she did not finish editing and uploading it as far as I am aware. So I am pretty sure that this is all brand new stuff. Uh, at least the second half. The first half, I, I believe that that one might have actually already been published. <laughs> so now, as far as the next week's episode, that is going to get back into the AMA. It will be the last episode of the AMA. If this is something that you guys want to hear more of in the future, we might do another one next year. I'm not really sure. I know that we've had a lot of positive feedback on it, and I know that some of you are very interested to know more and might even have more questions. You can always submit those. We might find a, a different way of approaching your questions so that it's not an entire episode. <laughs> But as far as the episodes afterwards, we have some really neat stuff planned. And don't forget, we do have the upcoming Halloween episode. Now, to broach a topic, uh, the end of this podcast episode, Holly mentions how to know whether or not you um, can salvage a product or should just kind of walk away from it. Now, in the show notes, alonewithinvisiblepeople.com, I will link to the article that she refers to, but if you would like to hear us discuss this on the podcast, let us know. You can let us know by commenting on the Podbean app, but it's hit or miss whether or not we're going to see it. The same thing with Facebook and Instagram. The best way to let us know if you want us to cover a topic is to go to hollyswritingclasses.com, create the free account, hit to the forums, which is the podcast. It's, it's called Our Podcast Alone with Invisible People. And let us know in this episode uh, thread that you would like us to cover the topic on the podcast. Thank you guys so much for listening. We love you guys. Remember that this is very old. This is going on, what, 14 years old now, I think, as far as the podcast from Holly. And it's neat to hear how, how much she has stuck to her guns on certain things like there's no one true way and... And yet, there's some really, really interesting information in here. I think you guys will really enjoy it. Thank you, and we'll see you guys next week. Holly Lyle on Writing, Episode 5 Welcome to Holly Lyle on Writing. I'm Holly Lyle, and I'm still on deadline, currently doing about 5,000 words a day. So this is going to be a very short and possibly kind of erratic episode. Um, I have a number of questions from readers, and I'm going to go ahead and get started with those. Jess asks... Regardless of whether I'm writing a story or doing exercises to know my characters, I often come across plot points and characteristics and feel like I've seen this before. 
For example, writing about a vampire with a conscience, it has been done yet, it doesn't stop me from being attracted to the story. For the moment, I've moved on to other ideas so that I can keep learning and growing as a writer, but it leaves me to wonder how I can conquer ideas that I've seen elsewhere. So how do you keep your stories from being cliché? Another writer, Holly, asks, My question is this. Your plots and characters always seem so original. So how do you avoid the mundane and create something unique and interesting every time? Like most amateur writers, I tend to struggle with my plot, so I would like to know where do you draw your inspiration from? These sound like two different problems. How are you original? How do you avoid cliches? Where do you get your inspiration? But they are in fact the same problem. They are exactly the same problem. Because what you're talking about is how do you find what's different in your story from all the other stories that have ever been written. Writers tend to think that the problem is with orig originality, that what they need to do is be more original. The problem with being original is that people want something that they can relate to. They want something that they can understand. So the more original you are with your story, the farther you're going to be moving from the things that everyone understands, from the issues that they can relate to as people. You can write a story that is entirely about alien characters who have no th nothing in common with human beings. They don't share um, emotions, they don't share types of relationships, but if you do this then your readers will have no way to link into the story and understand it and feel for it and feel with it. Um, on the other hand, the closer you get to um, the universal story, to the event or the issue that will relate to everybody on the planet, that everyone will, will understand and empathize with, the less original you can be. So this would seem to be the impossible dilemma. However, it's not. Because what you are looking for in your story is not originality. You're looking for uniqueness. And uniqueness is, it's a combination of your voice and your view of the world added to your characters and their takes on the world. And while no story is ever going to be completely original that relates to anyone who's listening to it, all stories can be unique. The way I make my stories unique is I focus on creating worlds that are different from this one. If I'm working in this world, I focus on creating situations that are difficult or exciting. But the most important thing that I do to make my stories unique is I create unique people. They have problems that we can all empathize with, but just like every other person on the planet is unique. My characters, I, I make a point of making them unique too. They are not all the same sort of stock character. They are not a, they are not anybody that you could relate, you could, could categorize as a Tolkien elf or as a standard noir detective. And the way that I create unique characters is I ask them questions. I'm going to read for you from Holly Lyle's Create a Character Clinic. Uh, this is a brief excerpt on character through moral stance that will give you a little idea of what I mean 
when I say that your characters will make your story unique. How they choose right from wrong. Moral stance is how your character behaves when he knows he won't get caught. It's how he acts when he has to risk himself in some way for the benefit of others. It's how he acts when he sees an opportunity for gain or the chance to hurt without reprisal someone he hates. In a lot of quarters, even suggesting that moral stance should be a consideration in your development of your character is met with scorn and derision. Moral relativists, and there are a lot of them, insist that their own actions and the actions of others are neither moral nor immoral, neither good nor evil, that everything has to be judged within some abstract framework in which all approved points of view are held to be equally relevant and all actions equally acceptable, deserving of neither blame nor praise. However, if you take this tack, you won't have a story. You can have a lot of words on a page, but as I noted in a long and I hope funny essay titled How to Write Suckitudinous Fiction, this will be linked in the podcast, writing fiction is by its nature a moral exercise in that to successfully tell a story, you have to choose sides. You have to convince a reader to care about the outcome of one character character at the expense of other characters. And to do that, you have to care yourself which characters succeed and which fail. You have to decide that one point of view is better than another. You have to create real obstacles for your characters to overcome. You have to pit ideas against ideas and actions against actions and have some triumph and some fail. While morality is rarely ever a simple, as simple as black and white or pure good versus pure evil, it can't all be relegated to the realm of it's all the same. If everything is all the same, then nothing matters. If nothing matters, if all your characters' actions are pointless and all their lives are futile, who is going to wade through your prose to read about them? Even if you've never picked sides before, you're going to have to pick them now. To do that, you're going to need the same thing that has given birth to every philosophy and every religion and every science and pseudoscience since the dawn of time. Questions, of course. Here are a cluster of starter questions on moral stance. Remember, when reading through these, that the same questions will yield both heroes and villains, protagonists and antagonists. And I'll give you a few of the questions. From public values, when will he let someone down who, has count, who was counting on him rather than lose face with others? When will he risk humiliation to stand up for what he believes? Where are his public and private values the same? How do his personal values differ from his public values? What will he be self-righteous about publicly that he does privately? And from private values, here are a few. Under what circumstances will your character put himself at risk for someone else? When will he lie? When will he cheat? When will he tell the truth even if it will cost him? When will he stand up for what is right? Where does he suffer from private moral weakness? Where does he hold private moral strength? That was an excerpt from Holly Lyle's Create a Character Clinic, and that's available in ebook form on my website. It's shop, S-H-O-P dot Holly Lyle, H-O-L-L-Y-L-I-S-L-E dot com. Now, um, we have discussed the importance of uniqueness and the relative unimportance of originality. And we've gone over some questions in one small area of one character that will allow us to make him unique. So let's go back to our vampire with conscience. And what we want to do with him is we want to make him not the stock vampire with a conscience. We want to make him someone. We want to make him a person that we can believe in. What we're going to do in order to do this is we're going to start looking at his conscience, 
since that's that's the thing that is either going to make him just another character that like every other character in every other vampire novel you've read lately or it's going to make him unique why does he have a conscience in what area does he have a conscience see not all consciences are created equal and it's really important to remember that our vampire for example can be a member of a specific um, race or ethnic group or social class and he can feel a conscience towards other members of that group. He can be squeamish about uh, sucking blood from them or killing them, but have absolutely no res remorse whatsoever when he's dealing with members that are not of what he considers a special or favored class. He can have a conscience towards just women or just women and children, or maybe he has a, a thing against women and children, or maybe he's a she, and she has a thing against women and children, but has a conscience about killing men. So we have to look at where he comes from, and we have to look at what his goals were as a human, what his ideals were. Okay, we're going to go back to um, when will he stand up for what is right, and where does he hold private moral strength? Because this is this is going to be the source of his conscience. And we've got to say, uh, well, where does he suffer private moral weakness? Who does he consider to be a legitimate victim? Who does he consider to be deserving of suffering? For For us to know that, we have to know where he came from in time. We have to know where he came from in place. We have to know what the sociological situation was around him. Um, political situations, you have to ask yourself questions. And by the time you have answered these questions, by the time you have said, well, this vampire is an emerind, uh, one of the tribes of original uh, groups of people living in the United States, he, was, he became a vampire in about the 1800s when the United States government was actively hunting down American tribes. He has a real thing against the government. So he has no conscience whatsoever when it comes to dealing with government employees, especially those who make policy. But he has a conscience regarding um, his own people. Or, or he has uh, no conscience when it comes to dealing with tribes that were historically inimical to his tribe, but he has uh, a conscience regarding people of his own tribe. You see, when you get to the questions, all of a sudden, it's not a stereotypical situation anymore. You're not doing a cliche. You're not doing something that everybody else has done. So what you want to do, sit down, ask yourself questions, find the uniqueness in the story, find the, the thing that you bring to it and that your character brings to it that will make his situation not the same as everybody else's situation out there. Okay, so now we're going to move on to Brian's question. Brian says, Hi Holly, I have a quick question that no one can seem to answer for me. How many main characters is too many? In the novel I'm working on, I have five main characters, one of which I picked up along the way because of a disaster to provide a blossoming romance subplot. Is five too many to keep up with? No, the the number of characters that is too many is 17 and three quarters. I'm joking. 
there is no correct number. There is no magic number where you say, well, this is this is the exact correct number of main characters, and beyond this, no one shall go. It depends on your story. It depends on how long your book is. It depends on how long your trilogy or your ever-increasing series of open-ended novels is. It depends on how focused you are on the characters of, that you're writing about and how able you are to engage your reader in <clears throat> in the lives and the uniqueness of each of these characters. If you are writing a short book, then basically you want two or three characters at tops because you want to be able to get into those characters in depth. And, and this is main characters, okay? This is not supporting characters. This is not guys who are selling stuff on the street. It's not tip droppers who are whispering things in back alleys. It's not little cameo visits that you have from someone who just brightens up the background or interacts with one of your main characters. It's the people that the story is about. If you're going longer, if you're going 100,000 words, if you're going 200,000 words, you can have five, six, seven, eight main characters. I personally would not want to handle more than about 10, and of those, I would make sure that about half were people that I considered to be on the good side. I would have half that I considered to be on the bad side, kind of balance out my protagonists and antagonists. And when I was doing that, I would also make sure that those characters were supporting several different storylines that interconnected and were not all related to the same storyline and were plotting through together in a sort of forced group march. As with everything else in writing, however, what we basically end up looking here is the fact that there is no one true way, there is no one magic number. Uh, you're going to have to figure it out from the context of what you're working on. My next question is from Heather, who writes, I just got your Create a Language workshop, and so far I love it. One thing I'm concerned about, though, is the length of some of my words. A good chunk of them are at least three syllables long. Do you have a method for trimming down excessively long words in your languages, or, you just, or do you just use them as they happen to create themselves? For me, it depends on what I want my language to sound like. Sometimes I want a language with really long words. Sometimes I don't. With that said, however, yes, there are some ways to shorten up your words. Um, we go over agglomeration as one way of word building in the language clinic, and that is taking a word and tacking on suffixes or prefixes that change the meaning of the word, that create new tenses, that create new cases, and that that agglomeration is one way of doing this, and it does unfortunately result in some really long words. Let me give you an example here. Take sort of a case of dissatisfaction. Say that you wanted to say, I had wanted to have been going to the market right about now. I'm disappointed about this. It didn't work out, but that's what I had wanted to have been doing. That would could be agglomerated into one word, something along the lines of go hastu naku farnotoska. One word, very long word. Um, there are some languages that have very, very long words for this reason. They agglomerate. The way to shorten things up is to use the English method, to use helper words, and which gives you, uh, which I just gave you the example of that, I had wanted to have been going. That's all one verb. That's a verb in a complicated and convoluted tense, but it is made up of a whole bunch of short words. And the helper word method is one of the things that makes English both pretty flexible and pretty pronounceable. So if you're wanting to use 
uh, a lot of shorter words rather than a bunch of conjugated way, way long words, then look at helper words rather than agglomeration as a method of language building. Okay, now we have a question from Adam. He says, hi, I'm Adam from England. Uh, recently bought and started reading Talon, and I'm enjoying it immensely. Thank you very much. I'll be buying Diplomacy of Wolves as a result soon, and thank you very much for that, too. I wanted to ask you a few questions concerning writing. I know a few writers that write multiple books at one time. Is this productive? That depends on the writer, and it depends on the situation, and it depends on a whole lot of other things. If you're good at multitasking, if you're doing two separate tasks on two separate books, for example, writing a first draft on one and doing uh, post-draft editing on another, it is at least doable. Whether it is any more productive than um, sitting your butt down in the seat and just plowing through one particular book depends on who you are as a person. Question number two. If I get an agent, would he submit the work to publishers or would I? If you get a good agent, he'll do it. Uh, there are a lot of crap agents out there, and those agents do not do much of anything that I can figure out for their clients except take the money. But yeah, a good agent will contact editors and publishers and do all of the preliminary work for you, which is one of the reasons that those of us who have them love our agents. And uh, question number three. I am a young author. Are agents and publishers mostly young author friendly? The publishing business as a whole is not anybody friendly. It is cutthroat and difficult and very hard to get into and very hard to stay in. With that said, agents and editors, um, never publishers. You're, you're almost never going to even see a publisher. But agents and editors are talent friendly. If you come into them and you present them with a finished work that blows their socks off, they don't care if you're 12. They don't care if you're uh, conjoined twins. They don't care if you are secretly a dog. It's like being on the internet. No one can see who you are as a writer. So as long as you are presenting them with something that they want and can use and can sell, they're cool with that. I don't think, however, that if I were uh, 13 or 15 or 17 and I had written a book that would just knock the socks off of publishing, the first thing that I would tell editors and agents was that I was 13 or 15 or 17. I think my attempt would be to present myself in as professional a manner as possible and then after they had expressed interest in the book, say, mm, by the way, I am uh, very young. <laughs> And the, then they can look at that and see it as a marketing plus. First, though, you've got to present the goods. You've got to present a publishable book that they love. As a final thing, I would like to remind you never to give up on your dream. Writing is a challenge. It can be tough. It can be bewildering sometimes. It can leave you feeling like you are alone and that nobody else has ever felt this way before when you are struggling through a difficult part of a book. Don't give up. Persistence is the key to success. Just hang on, keep doing it, and it is doable. You can get there, you can do this, and it's worth it. Thanks, and I'll talk to you again soon. Hi, and welcome to Episode 6 of Holly Lyle on Writing. I'm Holly Lyle, and I've been absent for a while. I guess I could say that the dog ate my homework, but that wouldn't be true. Um, but I have a much better excuse. I've been writing. Um... I wrote an entire book in six weeks because one of my editors bumped up my deadline by over a year so that instead of having a comfortable year to write the book, I had six weeks. It was a challenge. I made it. It's done. 
And after I finished that book, I wrote the Create a Culture Clinic, which is the second book in my world building series. And that follows up on the Create a Character Clinic and the Create a Language Clinic. And having completed those, now I'm back. It's been a very busy couple of months. Um, today I've got a bunch of questions from writers. Um, let me go ahead and get started with questions. I am an aspiring writer and one of the many hopefuls with an absolute passion for words. The question I have for you is how to deal with the inner critic that badgers you with self-doubt as soon as the word processor on your computer loads. Before I sleep, when I'm waking, working, walking, talking, or eating, I get these great lines and scenes in my head. But when I go to the computer, the inner critic starts screaming, you can't do this, please miss Daydreamer, what makes you so special, and so forth. How do you as a professional writer deal with the inner critic? That's thank you from Jess. Hi, Jess. Um, I ignore the inner critic. Uh, a long time ago, I realized that I had to give myself permission in first draft to write absolute garbage. Because the only way you can ever get to anything good is if you don't constantly criticize yourself about writing stuff that you think is bad. So I, I don't ever worry about it. It's never an issue for me. Um, when I go back and edit, it's a huge issue. Uh, I look at the things that I've written. I am very, very critical of what I've done. But in first draft, no, I let myself write anything. And if <laughs> that's that's what I suggest you try to do. Just tell the inner critic, your, your inner critic, yes, this is garbage. This is all garbage. It's absolute garbage. I know it's garbage, but I'm going to write it anyway. My second question, it comes from Ben C. He says, I'm a young writer, just starting out, but I'm having a huge problem. I can't get any really good ideas. Sometimes when I get really good ideas, they never seem to stick with me, and I can never finish them. If you have any advice that could help me, I would be very grateful. Ideas are highly, highly overrated in the world of writing. People think you have to come up with something unique, something that never any nobody has ever thought of before. This is untrue. What you need to do is come up with good characters, an interesting world, and a good conflict. Uh, a conflict is a struggle between two people, a struggle between two ideologies, a struggle between cultures. Here's what I do to get ideas. I draw a map. After I've drawn a map, I create a few characters. I develop a culture. I develop a language. Each of these things creates conflicts for me. I can see where there are borders, where two peoples from, from different ideologies have to deal with each other because of some sort of a geographic conflict. I can I can meet my characters and discover that one wants something that is in complete opposition to something that the other one wants. And they both have to go through each other through each other to get what they want. These this isn't idea based fiction. Um, if you're writing hard science fiction, I guess, you have to have idea-based fiction. You have to come up with some sort of a scientific principle that nobody has really written about before, or you have to come up with some sort of um, complex space issue. But science fiction is, is really the only place where idea-based fiction is essential. Everything else is about people, and people needing to get <laughs> and and quite frankly, the best science fiction is also about people. So that's my that's my advice for you there. Don't don't focus on the ideas. 
focus on the people, focus on the conflicts, focus on the world. My third question is from Basil in Canada. He writes, I buy most of my books, about 90%, at a large bookstore chain, Chapters Indigo, Canada's only large chain, kind of like a Barnes & Noble in the United States. I was wondering if it makes any difference to authors where I buy my books. Should I be seeking out smaller independent stores and having them order the books I want? Does it make any difference? Um, God, yes. It makes an enormous difference. Chains um, do computerized ordering, and computerized ordering orders to the net, which means if they order 20 books of your first novel, which, is, which would be a huge order, um, and they sell 18 of them, the next time they will order only 18. They will not say, hey, you know, that was a really great sell-through on that first 20 books. Let's order 25 next time, um, and let's keep them in stock. The third time, it, since there were only 18 on the shelves, let's say that only 15 of them sold. Um, so, so the next time, they will order 15. Um, having a sales record in which 18 sold, and then 15 sold, and then say the third order sold um, 11 of the 15. Okay, 18, 15, 11, the bookstores will, will look at their ordering list and say, this author shows declining sales. We do not wish to order any more books in this series. And that kills the series at three books. That can kill authors in three books. Um, chains are a nightmare for authors. I mean, we got to have them because they sell our books, but they do not have buyers who will go in and say, look, this author is promising. The book sold through at a pretty good percentage rate. Let's continue to order those books in the same numbers. Independent bookstores will do that. So, so for mid-list writers, independent bookstores are about the only lifeline we have left. Uh, this isn't. This is, it's not a happy thing. It really isn't. Um, computerized ordering has has just about killed the mid-list. Anders asks, I have printed first drafts for two novels sitting on my desk that I have yet to revise. I'm also a third of the way into the draft of my current work in progress and have a 20,000-word start of a novel sitting on my hard drive. Should I focus only on drafting this current novel at the moment, or should I try and revise one of the drafted novels at the same time? I'm probably going to have to completely rewrite one of them. The other one, I'll probably have to cut about a quarter of it and completely rewrite that section. I regard both of them with fast trepidation. I did manage to get 70 pages into revising the more troublesome novel, but ended up taking a siesta from it after realizing just how many problems I have. And of course, I'm also full of angst over the quality of both drafts. They look pretty terrible, especially compared to my current work in progress. Should I focus on one thing at once, try to revise one of these novels while writing my current project, or just cut and run from these two less than stellar drafts? Okay. Um... I have an article on my site called Burn It, Bury It, Let It Live, which is about how to figure out whether the books that you have sitting on your hard drive or, or sitting on the side of your desk right now are worth keeping, um, whether they're worth revising, whether whether you need to leap in and, and uh, just give them everything you've got or whether you need to throw them away. Um, I will include the link for it on the show notes. Um, and that's it for today. And I thank you for listening. 